0: I'm actually going to read from uh, the last verse of chapter 49. So Genesis 49, verse 33. We're on Jacob, who's Joseph's father, on his deathbed. Sorry, the reference is slightly wrong in the sheet. So page 43, Genesis 49, verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, and that is how many were required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I found favour in your eyes. Please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mirzim, for it is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he'd buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who'd gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob." Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In 1863, there was a great battle in America. General Stonewall Jackson was one of the commanders. And the night before the battle, he wrote to his wife uh, saying that although he didn't know the result, he was trusting in God. Well, the next day he won a great victory. Uh, But during the battle, his left arm was blown off. He lost the entire of his left arm. And a bit later in the day, the chaplain came to see him. And Stonewall Jackson said to him this, "'You see me severely wounded, but not depressed. "'I am sure that my heavenly Father "'designs this affliction for my good. "'I am perfectly satisfied that either in this life "'or in that which is to come, "'I shall discover that what is now regarded "'as a calamity is a blessing.'" Isn't that extraordinary? He'd gone into battle. He wasn't saying that God was on my side and we're the right troops of the law or anything like that. He was fighting for a cause he believed in, but, but, but he knew that ultimately God was sovereign. And having lost his left arm, he was able to say that God means this affliction, this suffering for my good. In fact, he went on to say that if it was in my power to replace my arm, I wouldn't dare do it unless I knew it was the will of my heavenly father. Wouldn't you love that sort of faith? It's extraordinary faith, isn't it? To be able to deal with tragedy like that. Imagine the suffering of losing an arm. Imagine the pain. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you'd call yourself a believer or not, wouldn't you like to be able to face suffering and adversity that confidently? If we're honest, I think most of us are are, are not like that at all. I know I'm not. Most of the time, we're much more like another character from the history of the church, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was once so depressed and downhearted by his own particular suffering and feeling far from God that there was nothing his wife could do to cheer him up. His wife was called Kate and she just couldn't, she couldn't reason with him. She couldn't read Bible verses to him. Nothing would cheer her up, him up, sorry. And so eventually she went on and put on a black dress that you'd wear to a funeral. And Martin was a bit surprised and said to her, are you going to a funeral? And Kate said to him, no, no. But since you're acting like God is dead, I wanted to join you in mourning. That's the kind of wife you want, isn't it? Like, m- most of the time, we're more like, when we face suffering, we're, we're, we're most of us more like Martin Luther, aren't we? We just go down. Okay, we, 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 we feel the weight of the suffering, we feel the pressure, and it just crushes us. We, we don't stand resolute like General Stonewall Jackson and say, so I'm sure it's my blessing. Uh, we know we all suffer or we will do at some point in our life that's why we sing psalms like the one we just sang the christian life is not all happy clappy all the time and so because we know we do and we will suffer we fear and we tremble now joseph the joseph story if you've been with us these past few weeks is a story of immense suffering really isn't it think of joseph age 17 just a teenager he's betrayed by his brothers beaten up in the fields chucked in a pit And then they change their mind, pull him out of the pit and he's sold into slavery. He's trafficked as a teenager to a foreign country. There he's bought by a master and he he works his way up in the household. Do you remember Potiphar? The master, he gets to the, the top of Potiphar's service. But then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. But when Joseph says no, she makes false accusations and Joseph is again thrown into jail. Years and years in jail. Then there's a glimmer of hope. Remember, he interprets the the dreams of the the baker and the butler, and when the butler is freed, Joseph says, well, remember me. But the butler who's freed forgets Joseph, so he spends even more years in prison before eventually he's brought before Pharaoh and lifted back up uh, to the heights of sitting at Pharaoh's right hand. Most of Joseph's life has been one of tremendous suffering, and that's why Genesis 50 verse 20 is such an extraordinary verse. That's our key verse, if you like, for this morning. Just have a look at it again with me. Joseph, speaking to his brothers, speaking to the ones who betrayed him and trafficked him, says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. I want to think about three things that Joseph believes and why they've got significance for us today. The first thing is Joseph does believe it was evil for the brothers to betray him. The first thing he believes is it was evil. You meant evil against me. Notice what Joseph doesn't say. Joseph doesn't say, well, don't worry, it wasn't that bad. He doesn't say, well, you know, because God was behind it, it wasn't really evil what you were doing. No, beating up your brother, trafficking him, selling him into slavery is wrong, morally wrong. Joseph knows there's such a thing as good and evil. If, by the way, you're someone here this morning who doesn't believe in God at all, an atheist, then it's very hard for you to have categories of evil, isn't it? There are things that inconvenience you. There are things you might not like, but, but there's no ultimate standard of right and wrong. Where would that come from? It you know, ultimately says who? Who says traffic is wrong? You do, but the brothers are quite happy trafficking. At different points in history, people have thought it's absolutely okay for masters to abuse their slaves. You think it's wrong, they think it's right. If there's no God above us all with any kind of moral law, well, then the concept of right and wrong, evil and good, is well, it's a fiction. When a rock falls off a cliff and bashes into another rock and they break up, no one accuses the first rock of doing anything morally wrong, it's just atoms in motion. If that's all we are as human beings, just meat robots, as one author has called us, then even the concept of evil is a fiction, an illusion. But but Joseph knows he is accountable. All of us ultimately are accountable to God. What the brothers did was wrong. It was evil. And yet secondly, he also believes they were responsible. Do you see that? You meant evil against me. Yes, it was used for good, but that doesn't mean they weren't responsible. It is the brothers who were jealous of him they were jealous. They beat him up. They sold him. They dipped his coat in blood. They lied to Jacob, their father. There's great pressure, isn't there, for us to refuse to take accountability for our lives, particularly for our sin. Whether you're a Christian or not, we we, we try and justify our actions. So you can imagine the scene. Joseph is there accusing them. Also, Joseph is saying, you know, you meant it for evil. And in comes the counsellor. And the council comes in and says, look, Joseph, you've got to understand their circumstances. Your father favoured you over them. That's very hard for any boys growing up to bear. They need a supportive father. They'd grown up in a hostile environment. It wasn't really their fault that they therefore beat you up and threw you in a pit. They were just a product of their circumstances. But no, circumstances never excuse sin. Do you ever find yourself using... Your situation is an excuse for why you lashed out with your tongue. I'm just so tired. I'm sorry I shouted at you. Work was so stressful. Uh, Sometimes even more serious. People justify affairs by saying, you know, my wife isn't just caring for me anymore as she used to. Or, Or God brought this person into my life. She was at the desk next to me. He obviously meant us to be together circumstances never justify sin think of Jesus on the cross the most hostile circumstances anyone's ever been in entirely innocent and yet been crucified bearing the father's wrath at our sin and what does he do he prays father forgive them for they do not know what they do circumstances don't justify sin so off goes the counselor but in comes the theologian well God is sovereign God is in charge of everything that happens he planned the end from the beginning Uh, Every day of our life is written before one of them comes to be. Therefore, it's not the brother's fault. They're just like glove puppets. God made me do it. It's kind of what Adam and Eve say in the garden, isn't it? When Adam is caught, God comes to meet with him. And what does Adam say? Well, the woman you put here, she made me do it. It's either the woman's fault, circumstances, or it's kind of your fault, God. Your fault for putting Eve here with me. You gave me the woman that you put here. Your fault, God. The theologian is right. God is in control of everything. We're going to think about that in a minute. Nothing catches him by surprise, nothing catches him out. But we're not glove puppets. I meant to bring a puppet down this morning, but I haven't got one. But imagine, children. Okay, here's my little glove puppet. Okay, here you go. Little, Little snake. Okay, Sammy the snake. If I came up to you and I stole all your money, okay, pinched all your money, and then slapped you around the face. And then you got really cross and said, mummy, my Johnny hit me. And I said, it wasn't me, it was Sammy the snake. Would that be okay? No, not at all. Why not? Because I'm controlling little Sammy the snake. Sometimes people use the sovereignty of God, the idea that God is in control, to, 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 to speak as if we're just puppets on a string. As if it wasn't really the brother's fault. God, God forced them into it. The brothers were hoping to have a lovely picnic with, with Joseph and God somehow sovereignly planned and forced them into their sin. No, not at all. Not at all. We are responsible for our actions. So away goes the counsellor, Away goes the theologian. Along comes the uh, the evolutionist. Darwin himself, in one of his notebooks back in 1838, wrote this: "Our descent then is the origin of our evil passions." Do you hear that? Our descent is the origins of our evil passions. The devil, under the form of the baboon, is our grandfather. What's he saying? My baboon genes made me do it. It's Darwin himself. Why do people do evil? We've just inherited it from our baboon ancestors. Now, I know evolution has got more sophisticated than saying we're just descended from baboons, but you see his point. Ultimately, we're not responsible. But no, Joseph knows. The Bible is clear we are responsible for our actions. So it was evil, they were responsible, and thirdly, and this is where the mystery starts coming in, God planned it. You see, verse 20 again, Genesis 50, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. God had a purpose even for the terrible actions of the brothers. He planned it. Ephesians one eleven says God works everything out in accordance with the purpose of his will. Nothing happens on earth that is not planned by God. Even what we would say is bad things. The prophet Amos once says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Does disaster, did you hear that? That should be really shocking words. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The Lord plans everything. Now, Joseph is not saying that God is like a kind of... Have you ever seen the show DIY SOS? It, you know, people um, have a go at putting shelves up or build a conservatory, and it's such a mess that then they have to bring in... I think it's Nick Knowles comes in with his team, and they sort of sort it all out afterwards. So we make a mess, and then the experts come in and sort it all out, and it all ends happily ever after. That, that's not what's going on. It's not that the brothers planned evil, and then God swept in afterwards and tied it all up for good. No, God meant it. He planned it. And and obviously, the question comes, well, how do those two go together? We're responsible, and yet God plans. He is sovereign over everything. Why is it not the glove puppet? Bottom answer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that's just a lack in my knowledge, Ultimately, I think we can't know. We're not capable of fully understanding how God is able to make a world where we are responsible, not puppets on a string, and at the same time, everything happens that he planned. Let me give you a partial illustration. Okay, and this is a partial illustration. It's not perfect by any means. Has anyone ever tried to arrest J.K. Rowling for the murder of Harry Potter's parents? No. No. Who killed Harry Potter's parents? Children? Voldemort, exactly. Voldemort. Voldemort. So J.K. Rowling is the creator, she writes the book, and in the, in the world of the book, Voldemort kills Harry Potter's parents. He is the baddie. And yet it is completely in accord with J.K. Rowling's plan. We understand, even we as little tiny creators, we understand that there's a difference between us and our, our creatures. That we can somehow be in control of them and yet not responsible for their actions, and yet now, that, that is an imperfect illustration, okay? Don't, don't take every implication of it. But you see, the point is, even we, as pretty small-minded creators, can sort of create worlds where we oversee them, yet we're not responsible. Well, God <laughs> is so much greater creator that somehow he can make a world where he's fully in control, and yet we are responsible. And those are the two truths you've just got to hold on to in the Bible. Some of you might have been to um, Northern Ireland. There's an amazing rope bridge. It's kind of site that people visit in Northern Ireland called Carrickareed and it's terrifying is that there's mainland and you walk over this bridge um, to a little rocky outlet and it used to just be a rope and that the the the, um, fishermen would walk across this rope Uh, and either side there's there's a another rope to hang on to they've made it a bit safer nowadays um, now the National Trust have got hold on it but either way it's this a rickety bridge thing that you walk across and there are two things to hold on to either side you do not want to let go of either side when you walk across they're, they're what keep you stable, these two guide rails. In, in the Bible, the two guide rails you must hold on to are that God is fully in control of everything, planned every last detail of your life. And yet, still, we are responsible for how we act. Can I explain fully how those two go together? No. But ultimately, when this is pushed on Paul in Romans, he says, We're like clay and God is the potter. Can a pot say to the master, What have you done it like this for? We have tiny brains children if you've got pets okay how much cleverer are you than your pets okay than your dog or your hamster yeah mum's saying 50 50 but (laughs) that's very rude you are much cleverer than your your pets okay how much clever is daddy than your pets loads daddy's brain is way bigger than dog's brain okay or think of a little ant that crawls across the table how much bigger is your brain than the ant's brain well actually the gap between you and the ant is nothing compared to the gap between us and God. He is much, much more wonderful. So Genesis 50, 20, God is fully in control of the evil, planned it, and yet the brothers are responsible. What was his plan? Well, it's there, isn't it? Verse 20, what was the purpose of this plan? God meant it for good, what good? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Why did God allow and plan for Joseph's brothers to chuck him in the pit and have him sold into slavery. Ultimately, it's so that you and I might be here this morning. Ultimately, that's the reason. Do you see yourself in that verse? You are in the many people who should be kept alive because of Joseph's rise to power. Now, first and foremost, he's speaking about those who are fed in the famine, isn't he? Do you remember Joseph? After he got out of prison, became the governor. He was able to interpret the future. He planned for the famine so that the Egyptians and the Israelites didn't die. So that's, that's the first people he's thinking about. But who was kept alive because of Joseph's planning? Yes, the Egyptians. Yes, Pharaoh. But also Joseph's brothers, including Judah. And do you remember who last week is Judah's great 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 grandson? Does anyone remember? Down the line. Children, do any of you remember? Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather of? Of David. Brilliant. And let's say I put a few more greats in. Ugh. Yeah, Emma? Jesus, brilliant. Ultimately, Judah is the, I don't know, 200th grandfather of Jesus. It's not 200. If Judah had died in the famine, no Jesus. Part of the point of the story of Joseph is the protection of the line of the Messiah, the family of the Messiah, so that the Messiah would come. Because Joseph kept Judah alive, Judah in turn gives way to Jesus. And Jesus comes so that all of us, well, might receive the blessings of the far greater Joseph. Uh, Joseph ultimately is a picture, a shadow of Christ, well, we see that, by the way, in the way that Jesus too, like Joseph, suffers innocently but under the plan of God. So on Pentecost, when Peter's preaching, okay, first great Christian sermon, I suppose you'd say, Peter says this: Jesus was. He's talking to the, the Jewish people who'd crucified Jesus. He says this: Jesus delivered up was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered up according to. definite plan of God. And yet he goes on to say, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You see the two guardrails again, definite plan of God, but you're still lawless and wicked to do it. It wasn't that Pilate was forced to kill Jesus against his will, Judas to betray him, Herod to hand him over. When I was at university, uh, we used to have a little student group uh, after church and one week it was on predestination this idea that God is in control of everything has laid everything out so I went along and the minister started by saying um, look this is in a series on, on hot topics things that Christians debate but let me tell you I've never met a Christian who doesn't believe in predestination and, and everyone was like well, I don't and, uh, chunter 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 he said no no no, no I've never met a uh, Christian who doesn't believe in predestination and he explained it like this which Christian thinks that actually Jesus might not have ended up dying for our sins on the cross? Does anyone think that it might have happened that Pilate said, go on then, I'll let you off? Does anyone think that Judas might have stayed faithful? Does anyone think that Herod might have said, no, I'm gonna protect Jesus? No, all of us believe that Jesus was gonna end up dying for our sins on the cross. It's prophesied all the way through the Old Testament for starters, God's word can't fail to happen. We all know it's gonna happen. And yet his crucifixion was in the hands of wicked men, Pilate, Judas, Herod, Pharisees, the council, all these men with their real decisions come together to kill him. The greatest evil committed by mankind leads to the greatest good. And what is that good? Genesis 50, 20, many people being kept alive so, so two conclusions, okay, if, you, if you hold these two guardrails in place, two conclusions for us this morning. First is you can be certain of forgiveness, certain of forgiveness. The brothers are terrified, aren't they? See verse 15? Well, they, they, they see Jacob has died, their dad, and they think, well, maybe Joseph's just been holding back from punishing us because of dad. You know, he doesn't want a family fight again. So now dad's gone, maybe now, maybe now we'll face judgment. Maybe now when we come face to face with God's ruler, eye to eye, maybe we're in trouble. Do you ever ever fear that? Do you ever fear that God isn't actually for you? He hasn't actually forgiven you. That, That when you die and it's just you and him face to face, that actually you might actually be in trouble. Maybe all this time he's just been going easy on you because, well, he loves your wife or your husband or your children. Maybe he's just held back because, well, he's patient. But really, underneath, he's going to punish you. No. No, no, no. See how Joseph responds? He weeps with compassion. Verse 21, I will provide for you. He speaks kindly to them. He comforts them. Joseph's salvation of the brothers, if you like, is a picture ultimately of Christ's salvation of us. He really is full of mercy. This wicked deed where we arrange as the human race to have him crucified was ultimately the moment of great salvation for our race. Yes, our wickedest sin was meant for good, the salvation of many. And that's why at Pentecost, Peter doesn't say, God planned that Jesus would be crucified. You killed him at the hands of lawless, wicked men, and therefore God is gonna come and judge you and kill you all. Now, what does he say? He says, Christ has been raised up to provide forgiveness for all people. Pent and believe, trust in him, and he will have mercy. We can be certain of forgiveness because this was always God's plan to use our wickedest deed for the salvation of many. If Joseph was compassionate and forgiving, how much more is Christ? How much more will Christ speak kindly to you if you're one of his brothers, someone who's put your trust in him, comfort you and welcome you into his heavenly kingdom? There is nothing that Christ will not forgive. No sin too great, no sin too scandalous, no sin too shameful. He will forgive fully, finally, and not begrudgingly, but kindly and full of comfort. You can be certain of forgiveness. Secondly and finally, you can be confident when suffering. You can be confident when suffering. Yes, Genesis 50, 20, ultimately I think is appointed to Christ. Joseph is appointed to Christ. But he also is a disciple, isn't he? Joseph isn't the actual Messiah, finally. He's not the one who dies for our sins. Ultimately, Joseph is saved by Jesus too. He's a disciple like us. And he was able to look back and say, God meant the suffering in my life for good. No anger, no bitterness, just a trust in the character of God. Even when the circumstances seem to, to scream at him, God has abandoned you, God is against you. Is he, is he sat in the pit or in jail or heard the false accusations? Did he feel comfort? Did he feel close to God? Well, I don't know, but unlikely I would guess. But he kept trusting that God was working for good even in the evil he was experiencing. These are not words, in other words, from an armchair theologian. Joseph is not sat in uh, a comfy chair writing little sort of theology books for his brothers. He has been on the receiving end of terrible violence. And yet he is able to say, God meant it for good. Are those words just to Joseph as a picture of Christ? Or are they words to us too? Can Christians say, God means the evil in my life for good? Yes. Yes, you can. You can if you're connected to Christ. Keep a finger in Genesis, but come to Romans 8. Maybe one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Romans 8. Uh, it's on page 944. 944. Romans 8. Let me just zoom in on one verse, Romans 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. In God's hands, all things will work together for good. Now, what is he not saying? He's not saying that everything that happens to you is a good thing in and of itself. Okay? It's not a good thing to get ill. Okay, like a pleasant, oh yeah, I'm ill. It's not a good thing to be betrayed by your brothers and sold into, into slavery. Remember, Joseph believed in evil. That's why I started there. There are still evil things that happen. You do not have to say when you suffer, this thing in and of itself is a really good thing. I enjoy or I'm happy that I've got some terrible disease. I'm happy that a close relative died. No, of course not. There's still wicked things that happen to us. That's why we sing the Psalms, for example. How long, long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? That's not an unfaithful cry. We suffer. Neither does Romans 8 tell us that we will necessarily understand everything at the time. Okay? If you're suffering at the moment, something horrible has happened to you, you may not know exactly why right now in a sort of... Well, I can see straight away that it's led to this good result. But it does promise us, Romans 8, that there is a purpose. There is a purpose for your suffering. Not one ounce of your suffering is wasted. Not one drop is pointless. Do you know the difference between a, a labyrinth and a maze? Children, have you ever heard of a labyrinth and a maze? Do you know the difference between a labyrinth and a maze? I didn't they're both confusing when you're in them you go in and you get lost and you can't see the way out and it's dark and you don't know what's around the next corner but there's a difference a maze has dead ends you know this a maze has pointless routes you go down and it's just a dead end and you have to retrace your steps and come back and there was no point going that way you go back to where you started try again a labyrinth doesn't just keeps going and although you can't see what's happening you can't see what's around the corner you don't know what's coming up next you're actually always going forwards because there is only one route and it will lead you towards the end goal There you go, that's the difference between a labyrinth and a maze. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is a labyrinth, not a maze. You don't know what's around the next corner. God doesn't always tell you why the particular path you're on at the moment feels dark and enclosed and frightening. But you do have the promise that he is always moving you forwards towards the goal. And what is that goal? Well, what's Romans 8, 28 sandwiched between? Romans 8, 28 is sandwiched between two sections that talk of the same thing ultimately. Look at verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That's the end goal. Glorified is when God transforms you. uh, Ultimately, you end up in heaven, okay? It's the end goal. When Christ returns, you're completely glorified. Sin's gone, suffering's gone. The future is the goal, getting you safely home in the image of Christ. That's what's just after Romans 8.28. Just before Romans 8.28, again, the focus is on the future. Look at verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. As in, if what we're hoping for is already here, it's not hope. We can see it. No, no, there's something future, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See again, Paul is saying we're going somewhere. You might be suffering now, but you're going somewhere. Eternal glory will make it worthwhile. Come back to Genesis as we close. Genesis 50. If Romans twenty eight 8.28 was a promise, God works for good in those, for those who love him. God will work everything for good. And it was surrounded with these two pictures of ultimately heaven and glory and the future. That's exactly what we get in Genesis fifty twenty, which in some ways is the Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament. What happens straight afterwards? I say Joseph dies. That's not very encouraging. Sure, he dies. But he dies. What's his big concern in verses twenty two to twenty six? His big concern isn't with his death, but rather that they will take his body to the promised land. Verse twenty five. You shall carry up my bones from here. Because, well, God is going to take you to the promised land. Egypt isn't the end. Joseph knows that one day he'll get to the promised land. What comes just before? Genesis 50, 20. The conversation between Joseph and his brothers. Well, Jacob's death. See um, last verse of chapter 49? How is it described? Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. See the hope in that verse? Gathered to his people. Jacob's not just been put in the ground. Jacob's not just been popped in a coffin. He's gone to people. It's a little promise of eternal life, but just a little hint there, isn't it? He's gone to Abraham and Isaac and Seth and Abel and Adam and Noah and countless others. And in fact, the, the, the story we read, Genesis 50, you, you might have seen that 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 the way Jacob's body is taken to Egypt is described in ways just like the Exodus. The language is there. I'm not going to pick all through it now, but, but Pharaoh, sorry, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, let me go up. And the language is of going up, going up, going up, just like it's about to be in Exodus. Let me go up. When they go, the Egyptian chariots and horsemen go with them, just like they do in the Exodus, although they're chasing them in the Exodus. The route is a strange one. They Instead of just going directly, they go cross the Jordan and come in. It's the same route they take in the Exodus. It's not the direct route, it's the route they're going to take in the Exodus. Again, the, the, the idea is that this isn't it. There's a future for us. This world is not the end. Lord of the Rings, you might know that scene where Gandalf dies, seemingly, and then he reappears. He comes back, the Bulrog has taken him down to the pit, and he comes back, he reappears. Sorry if I've just ruined it for you. Really sorry. Um, it is quite early. Re- Gandalf reappears, and Samwise, the little, you know, fat hobbit who walks around with for Frodo, says to him, says to Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Isn't that a great line? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yeah, yeah, it is. God will use your sufferings to transform you into Christ-likeness and to get you safely home. You're in a labyrinth, not a maze. He means them for good. So yes, you weep, and you mourn. Please don't hear this as some sort of stoicism where we just grit our teeth and say, I don't mind that I'm suffering. I don't mind that my friend has died. I don't mind that I've been sacked and have no money. No, of course it's suffering, but it's suffering with hope, not pointless. I'm going to close by reading a poem. I never do this, but I'm going to do it today. A guy called William Cooper, who's a Christian, but incredibly weighed down, Uh, Depressed for most of his life, he attempted suicide at one point. He was good friends with with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote this poem, a beautiful poem, just after his attempted suicide. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. You can't interpret God's works. You don't know what he's up to in the details, but he's shown you the big plan He is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. General Stonewall Jackson, I shall discover what is now regarded as a calamity is a blessing. You might not discover it today or tomorrow, but you will discover it on the last day. So live in the confidence that every suffering, every drop of your pain has a purpose and we'll take you to eternal glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that we live in a universe that is ruled. We praise you that the throne is occupied, not empty, and is occupied by the man of sorrows, the one who bled and died for us, the one acquainted with grief. And we pray, therefore, that you would pour your spirit on us and give us faith to trust. Uh, both in his death for our sins, to know that we are fully and finally accepted and loved, but also in his plan for our lives, that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us and he will welcome us home to that heavenly banquet. Grant us that faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.